I vividly remember, Chris, a fighting for life. Now, if someone would say, what does that mean? I'd say, well, I felt like there was a choice to stay or go. Was that drug-induced? Absolutely, because it truly kept me alive. So I was doing all that I could to survive. What can you do? Well, you hope, right? So fortunately, when I did come out of the coma, the pain was excruciating, but at the same time, I was heavily medicated. So I was able to say to my dad, my last recollection is I was riding a bike. How is my bike? And that's like, and you know what, son, let's not worry about that. At the moment, we've got, we've got bigger things to worry about. But you can see as an athlete, you know, and a mindset, which you would appreciate, that's what mattered at the time. It was difficult to go through that uh, transition in ICU. You, you've been through that process, so you understand. But I have an attitude of gratitude because, you know, I, I should have been here. How many people do you know who get hit by a truck, eight tons, you know, going 110 kilometers an hour and hit someone on a bicycle? So generally that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't end well for the person on the bicycle. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where I talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, I think you'll see that with my good friend, John McLean. After an eight ton truck hit him while on a training ride for a triathlon broke his back in the hospital his father said to him how far can you go obviously this was coming from a dark place well how far i mean did olympics paralympics swam the english channel was the first paraplegic to finish in a qualifying time at the ironman has also gone back to the triathlon that he was training for, the, the Nippian uh, triathlon, and has done it without a wheelchair. So he's done some crazy technology uh, therapy, and we want to get into that. But John, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Chris, so good to see you again, my friend. I know it, we were just saying it's been a long time. We were assuming it's been about since 2005. It doesn't feel like that long because we raced together, raced wheelchairs together and raced together in Sydney back in 2000. What did that mean for you back at the time? Because you're a guy who was pushing, pushing, you know, pushing the envelope in everything. I mean, you were a junior, a, an aspiring junior rugby player, you know, or, or ascending uh, rugby player, it sounded like, uh, but also doing triathlons. I mean, is, has this always been who you are? And when your father said, how far can you go? Was that a bringing you back to who you really were? Um, let me think about the best way to answer that question. What was I doing in leading into Sydney? So is it okay to go back a little bit, which kind of frames that up? I'm the baby. Uh, older brother Mark, three years, older sister Marion, two years. So I'm the baby. And where we grew up, um, we would go and watch the Penrith Panthers play, and they would play against the Rabbitohs, um, one of the football teams here. And it started as a dream as a kid. So dad would get us our you know, uniform, and we would support the local team. And then that's where it started for me. And it was a dream, and the dream was imagine if I could run on and play. Imagine there's like a little boy like me watching. Imagine, and then I used to have a piece of paper and hope that some of the players might take the time to sign something for me. Some did, some did not. Fast forward time, I was then one of those players. So 
first grade is like the the top. I was kind of playing the level under that. And, and it was nice to be able to sign autographs for kids. And so that's the transition. Um, then I had my accident. How were you doing triathlon and rugby at the same time? Is that how it was working? Yeah. So a buddy of mine, you know, often the case, right? These, uh, these opportunities, I believe, are there for all of us all the time. And this piece on being human, I love that. And I guess it's just, you know, are you, I know you are, you have been, but are we as a collective also open to opportunities? Do we have our ears and eyes open to opportunities? So I was looking for something. And uh, after doing the English Channel, I thought, okay, what, what what's the next opportunity? And I thought, gee, it'd be but great. But hold on a second. The English Channel you did after after the accident though, right? Okay, so sequentially, I'll, I'll share that. Yeah. So leading back to that, my friend, um, he was a fitness instructor. And he said, there's a new sport. It's called a triathlon. You kind of swim, you bike, and you run. He goes, let's do it. Um, and I'm going to beat you. So he threw the challenge. And I didn't swim as a kid. I used to run. That was, I guess, uh, something what I didn't, I loved to run. That was what I was good at. And so he threw the challenge. And I won the first race. He won the second race. And I was training for the third race when I got hit by the truck. So were you a big guy at the time? I mean, you were a rugby player, right? So you were. Yeah. So I was kind of fast. I was the guy who was on the, what they call the wing or the outside. And the rugby, you kind of get the ball, a lot of cases to the wingers. And they run and hopefully put the ball over the line and, and score a try. So. Um, that was that was my asset was my speed. I could I, I could run quite fast. So that's what I was uh, doing at the time. In the winter is when you play football and summer was kind of you know athletics or triathlon. So that's what I was to complement me being a football player. I I took up the challenge of wanting to to to, to do this triathlon and I was in the process of um, hopefully winning the third race when I got hit by the truck. Wow. Now. You said you didn't swim. Not knowing how to swim is a really painful experience when you're trying to do a triathlon. I mean, swimming, I, I mean, running it kind of like you run, right? But when you're an inefficient swimmer because you don't know how, it really hurts. How long did it take you to learn how to swim? It sounds like you learned relatively quickly. So, yeah, so I, I, I did breaststroke for the swim opposed to freestyle. So I wasn't comfortable in water. I was comfortable on land, but that was part of the challenge. So I was, Colin was my friend. He's my friend who took, um, who asked me to challenge him. So he beat me out of the water. And then on the bike, uh, it was chasing him down. And then on the run is when I caught him. And that's when I won. And the following year, um, I was a little bit better because I started to go to the pool to get a sense of, you know, what is his stroke like? That's still very poor. Um, and I think the third time I was starting to get the hang of swim, swimming. Um, so that's uh, that's what I was training for when um, when I had my accident. I, I think it would have been close, the third race. So we'll never know. But um, I'm, I'm grateful. Back to opportunity. I'm grateful that he threw, threw out a challenge. And I, I was open to it. Um, but I guess that's what closed that door on, on a rugby career. Close the door on the rugby career, but then the idea of how far can you go? You you seemed like you said open to challenges, right? This is 
there's another challenge, but the challenge initially probably seemed overwhelming. I mean, they were talking about oak or mahogany kind of thing when they brought you into the into the hospital, right? It, there was not a lot of hope of you doing any of the things you've done or even making it through the day, really. What did do you tap into? Because that's always the question for people, right? Is like, you know, people probably say to you, well, I, I could never do that. I could never do what you've done. And people say it to me as well. And, and I think, well, you know, the first part was just the getting started part. Yeah, so that, that's a really good point. Um, you kind of hit, you touched on a nerve there, Chris. So thank you for your research. Um, yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> doctors often, because I'm friends with a lot, a lot of surgeons, um, doctors have conversations when they're operating because, you know, that's what they do. And we're very grateful that they can. So the conversation at the time was, you know, mahogany or pine because, you know, it's not looking good. Obviously, they do their best to, and I have so much love and respect for people, first responders, and who keep us alive at scenes of accidents and those things. So, the surgeon said to my dad, "We, you know, we don't expect him to live. So you should prepare yourself for that." Now, that's that's tough to hear um, at any time, but um, so that that was the first thing when I first came out of the coma, which was four days later. Uh, ironically, you know, I'm obviously dazed and I don't know where I am, and I'm kind of frightened and. You know, all your all your walls are obliterated. It's just the essence of being a human. Or a when you were asking about your bike too, right? Well, I was leading to that. So uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stealing your thunder. No, 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 not at all. It's it's um, it's it's beautiful that you've done the research to be able to to pivot at the time. So for me, I, I vividly remember Chris a fighting for life. Now, if someone would say, "What does that mean?" I'd say, well, I felt like there was a choice to stay or go. I felt that. Um, was that drug-induced? Absolutely, because it trying to keep me alive. Um, but I, I really felt like I, I had a choice in, in that. So I was doing all that I could to survive. What can you do? Well, you hope, right? Um, so fortunately, when I did come out of the coma, the pain was excruciating, but at the same time, I was heavily medicated. So I was able to say to my dad, my last recollection is I was riding a bike. How is my bike? And that's like, you know what, son, let's not worry about that. At the moment, we've got we've got bigger things to worry about. But you can see as an athlete, you know, and a mindset, which you would appreciate, that's what mattered at the time. So um, it was difficult to go through that uh, transition in ICU. Um, you, you've been through that process, so you understand. So for me, the other guy on the other side of the room, he'd broken his neck. So he was a quad, um, riding a motorbike, complete, I think C4 cervical uh, region four so completely relying on everybody for everything and that's when i started to realize two things one is that i'm so lucky to be alive like a gratitude uh, that's again hard to but i have an attitude of gratitude because you know I, I shouldn't be here how many people do you know who get hit by a truck eight tons you know going 110 kilometers an hour i think maybe 65 miles chris just trying to give that something around there so, so 60 i think 68 right 68 69 miles an hour yeah yeah so it's a big truck going really fast and hit someone on a bicycle so generally that doesn't does it doesn't end well for the person on the bicycle so uh, um very grateful for life and the, the other one is that um i was always thinking when i was in the hospital what am i going to do now because i felt that was the end of in my mind the world i love to run i love to play football 
But in actual fact, it was a pivoting uh, point again for more opportunity. So um, when dad had said to me, which is probably 12 months after my accident, so I was doing weights with my best buddy to kind of build myself up and get confidence and trying to build a wall again and you know see myself as being equal to others. That was one of the things I really struggled with, Chris, to share with you is pre-accident, I'm a, you know, I'm a footballer. That's how I kind of identified myself with my sense of self. And then, you know, after that, I'm, I'm categorized as someone who's, the language was disabled, which in my mind was, you're less than everybody else. To diss someone is not to encourage, it's the complete opposite. So I really struggled with that saying, do you know what? I'm still me. I just use a wheelchair now to get around uh, opposed to, so that was, that was challenging. So anyway, that that's where I was. And my dad had said to me uh, about 12 months afterwards when I was hopeful that I was going to get back to where I was because my family doctor, and these are the right people at the right time in our lives, Dr. Gabriel was his name. He came to visit me in hospital in the spinal unit and he said, John, don't worry. You're going to be bigger, you're going to be stronger, and you're going to be faster. And left the room. So what did he do? Well, he provided a seed of hope in a very dark environment. So I'm very grateful for him for doing that. So therefore, I then thought, I'm going to go back and play football. I'm going to go back and run. I'm going to go back and get access to the beach. I'm going to go. So started to create all these pictures in my head. Which are dreams, really, right? I mean, that's dreams are a life source. Yes. So, and I think, I think if I look back on my life, the little boy within, you know, here I am at, 57 where did that go chris but there's still a little boy who's alive and well and still loves to chase dreams so there's a nice piece i think when we when we're kids we we get fascinated by our dreams and some of them some of us chase the dreams as we get older we apply breaks and we start to tell ourselves that that's childish or you know that we can find excuses not to do that or um, irresponsible yeah exactly so i think back to my dad 12 months after the accident i was trying training really hard to see whether these dreams could come back uh, to life. And that's, I had a moment with my dad and he was a strong man, a uh, Scotsman, very stoic, and never saw him cry. That never happened at all until I cried in front of him, which he then cried. And that was, that was a beautiful moment for a father and son. And when all that kind of calmed down, and it, it had to be him, Chris, because I was holding on to a lot and it's important to let go. And it's easy to say, but often hard to do. So back to dad, um, there was a pause and he looked at me and he said, son, you survived getting hit by a truck and that landed. It needed to be 12 months for him to say that for me. And then he followed that up with, you know, how far can you go? And what a beautiful question. And it's allowed me to chase some dreams um, from that moment on. Did did it did those dreams manifest themselves in anything specific in that moment when he said, "How far can you go?" Is that does it get to be a concrete kind of thing of like that's the thing I want to do? That's the thing because you've been a guy. I mean, crossing the English Channel. I want to get to crossing the English Channel. Was was that the first big one? That is the big the the busiest shipping lane in the world. Twelve hours. 55 minutes, 59 degrees, I don't know what that is in, in Celsius, uh, uh, but it's not warm. That's true. Um, answering your question, the first big one was Hawaii, so Kona. Oh, Kona was the first one before before the... Before the uh, okay. So I think if you looked at, um, 
if you looked at what was next from that moment with dad, how far can you go? I accepted at that time that a wheelchair is going to be a part of, because I present as an incomplete T12 paraplegic, meaning I could hobble around on crutches, weight on left side, right side, more paralysis, and I'm very, very grateful for what I um, I am able to do with my spinal cord injury. And therefore that was like, okay, you know, the wheelchair is it, so what, what can that look like? And I'm glad I did do that because um, there was a big fear around that. And only because the doctor said you're going to be bigger, faster, and stronger. And I took that to mean something very different. He, he was saying that life's going to be different. And because I spoke to him many years later, why did you say that? And his response was that you were broken. And I absolutely was. And he said, I just, that came to me. So grateful that he was able to de deliver that as my doctor, which again had an impact. So then I went, okay, this is it. And when I, had built myself up, you know, with my best buddy, Jono, doing the weights. And then it's like, okay, what can we do now? And it's like, acceptance is what we need to do now. So I accept the fact that I need a wheelchair to help me move around. And that's when my best buddy said, well, let's do the triathlon you're training for, you know, and in the wheelchair. And initially I said to him, I only want to do it with you. And I only want to do it the day before because I was very uh, insecure, uncomfortable. I mean, all the things that you know, Chris. Sure. Because it's, it's such a different environment, isn't it, coming from a spinal unit, flat and safe, to, um, to life, which is not necessarily flat and, and safe. <laughs> so credit to, uh, credit to my best friend because he then challenged me and pushed back. He said, no, you're going to do it with me and everybody else. That's it. So he was pushing me out of my comfort zone. My comfort zone was, I believe I can do it. And you're the person I feel comfortable to do it with. But what he was saying was, um, this is another piece of acceptance that, you know, you're my buddy. You were my buddy before the accident, you're my buddy after the accident. Let's just face whatever we need to face and get on with it. And that was good because I managed to cross the finish line and I, I was given a, a hand cycle to trial, the Freedom Rider back in the day. Um, anyway, so I crossed the finish line and that then here in Australia, I was watching Wild World of Sports, which is a, a sporting event. And it kind of focused on the Hawaiian Ironman. And that's like, wow, there's an opportunity. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was a guy competing, an American called John Franks. He raced in 1994. And then I found out I needed to race against him and whoever won as a demonstration in Panama City, Florida, half Ironman, will get a chance to go to Kona 1995. So that's where it kind of started. Dad said, how far can you go? I accepted the fact that I needed the chair. I let go of the dream of running and playing football. Um, my friends surrounded me to say, well, let, let's, let's see what you can do. Like we're here to help you. So that, that was the first big, and, and Ironman took me three attempts to make all the cutoff times. And then after that, back to your point on the, on the channel, I was at a local pool and I met a gentleman who'd swum the channel and he simply said to me, if I can do it, so can you. Right. So you're susceptible to this, uh, to this inspiration, to this, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, uh, to suggestion, I guess, susceptible to suggestion. If I can do it, you can do it. And you're, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell, tell, tell you what happened. So we'll go back to being the boy, right? And I believe, this is my personal view, the little boy in you is alive and well. The question is, when's the last time you tapped into that smaller version of self? Okay. So I, I shared with you that when I was a kid, I'd had dreams of being, you know, a football player, right? Maybe I, I played reserve grade or second grade and first grade was the top one. 
So I went close. And then I was like, you know, I dreamed about being an athlete as a kid. So when the door, my accident um, transition, I felt that that was lost. I was never going to happen. In actual fact, when I accepted that it, the door was closed, locked, bolted, throw the key away like it's closed, don't try and keep going there because you will not succeed. When I accepted that, then it was like, wow, I need to open a new door. And Chris, when I opened the new door, there were new opportunities because you're starting from a blank canvas. You know, you've got a piece of paper in front of you with a pencil and, you know, do you choose to pick it up and start to create something? And it's back to dream. And then I went, you know, maybe I could be a wheelchair athlete. What what would that look like? So after doing, you know, Ironman, which I then saw myself as being equal. And as you said, the, I met this guy at the pool who swam the channel. And I, I thought, okay, I'm now sponsored by Nike. I'm now sponsored by Gatorade. I'm now sponsored by, um, I need to do something to justify that sponsorship. And that's why the English Channel was the next uh, the next challenge. And Iron Man, I mean, when you look at Iron Man too, right? I mean, you talk about being an equal, uh, an equal to the other to the other competitors, to the other people in some ways on the street as well, right? I mean, this is this is where it's all going in your mind. But Iron Man is just, I mean, this is this is you against the elements, against the the race against yourself and so because what is it it's 2.1 mile swim 2.4 mile swim 112 mile bike uh, marathon 26.2 yeah marathon. i mean this is that that is a ridiculous so how long how long did that take you when you finally qualified how long did that take you so i i, I I'll share that day with you because it was a long day, but I'll give you an, an abbreviated version. That it's 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 beautiful here and it's nice to have this conversation with you because you can relate on a on a, on a different level. Meaning, that was my mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. The yeah. opportunity was presented because I saw it on television. Uh, an Australian guy had won it for the first time. A guy called Greg Welsh. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the first time a non-American had had won the event. And when he crossed the line, he had a flag, right? And he leaked into the air and he had his flag. So that painted a picture in my mind. And that was, maybe I could do that. Maybe. So maybe then leads to, well, are you are you in or are you out? So, okay, I'm in. What do I do? Well, I need to find out about the event. Spoke to the race director. She then said, whoever wins the half man in Panama City, Florida, will get a chance to go to Kona 95. So I... I won that. So now here I am. Well, and what kind of a battle was that? Was there a battle? Was it head to head? Was it, how did yeah, that work? Um, uh, John Franks was the gentleman who I looked up to because I saw him on television and he's opening the doors for others. So he opened the door to Iron Man. Very grateful for him for doing that. Um, so John did swim backstroke. And by this time, Chris, I could swim. So I had, I had spent a lot of time <laughs> in the pool. Um, no more breaststroke. Yeah, I'd, I'd moved away from breaststroke and, you know, uh, freestyle was now my stroke of choice. So I, I, I beat John comfortably out of the swim. And then I was on the handbike, which is, again, half um, half Ironman distance. So I came off the bike and I, I didn't see him after that. So I think he pulled out after the, um, after the bike as he realized I was 
a fair way ahead and he wasn't going to be able to make up that time. So then, okay, that's the first step, if you will, or the first stroke. And then um, here I am now lining up in 1995 doing the Ironman. My swim was an hour seven. Friends get you in and out of the water. Um, again, this is a demonstration at this stage. And Ironman thought, let's wait and see what happens because maybe he uh, he is unable to make the cutoff times. So I'm on the handbike, um, turn around, and as you know, out there in uh, Kona on the big island, you've got the heat, the wind, and the hills. So the trade winds turn in the afternoon. So for me, there was a headwind all the way there, turned around, headwind all the way back. So, you know, I'm not exaggerating. I learned very quickly on that day that Mother Nature runs the race. You, you want to climb a mountain, call it Kilimanjaro. You want to swim a body of water, call it the English Channel. Well, it ultimately depends on whether... <laughs> the mountain or the ocean uh, allows you to have that opportunity. So anyway, I missed the bike cutoff by 40 minutes, but was asked to go on because we're still in a demonstration. So officially disqualified, but, um, you know, can it be completed? So I finished in 14 hours, 52. Um, 14 hours and 52 minutes. Wow. That's a long day. Yes. And I was, um, here's another one about the human spirit, because we talk about, you know, being human. My best friend, uh, Jono, was there to say the right thing at the right time, as was my dad, as was my doctor. I shared a couple of the examples. So in my mind, I was like, I'm done. I, like, I had enough. So it's a funny little story because I'm going up the last big hill on the bike, on the hand cycle to get to the top of the hill. So, you know, little gear trying to get to the top. And it gave him the opportunity to have a conversation. And he said, you got to go on. I was like, no, I'm done. And he said, well, you know, you have to keep on going. And I said, well, the swim took me one hour seven. I've been on this hand cycle now for 10 hours and 40 minutes. I'm a little tired. So Chrissy's response was beautiful. He said, well, it's my son's birthday today and I'm not with him. Right here, right, right here. So I'm like, no choice. I was like, no choice. Okay, I'm going on. I'm going on for you, not me, I'm done. But because you came to visit me in hospital once a week for four months, because you've stood by me, uh, I'm going on. And what does that mean? And again, I know that you know that we all have more. It's just often we don't access that more because we have other conversations. So he, I was pushed to the brink. He then found more in me. And then I finished, you know, as I said, went back the next year. I got a flat on the bike again as the only which athlete in a demonstration event, 96. Missed the bike cutoff by 15 minutes due to a flat. Again, disqualified, again, asked to continue, 14 hours, 39. Went back the next year, and here's the nice piece. Went back the next year, and Ironman said it's going to happen. So now let's have our first wheelchair category. So the first three men that went through uh, in a place called Lubbock, Lubbock, sure, Lubbock Texas, Texas, right? Um, were then going to be the first three athletes, and they're going to have the first category. So I was very fortunate to win that first category, Chris. And the door's now open to any male, female who wants to take on the challenge of doing Ironman, as it is for paratriathlon, as you know. So nice to have been able to possibly play a part in opening the doors for others. Well, yeah. And obviously, I mean, opening the doors for others sounds sounds simpler than almost 15 hours of just pain. I mean, just probably blood coming out of, out of your tears kind of thing. And then, and then finally making it because there was a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into training just to have the opportunity to get to the starting line. 
what did that in the moment when you qualified so you're finally because it's it's in the dark right by the time by the time you're finishing it's in the dark and you recognize that you've made it through the bike which was the big the big challenge right because even though you weren't as good a wheelchair racer as you would become you you knew that you'd be faster than the runners or at least the vast majority of runners in the in the marathon but still when you finished because i mean who knows right your arms could fall off but in the in the in the marathon what was that moment like was it a, was it a personal moment was it a moment where you're where you're thinking about your buddy Jono, where you're thinking about your dad, where you're thinking about those people who will go behind you. What do you think in that moment? Well, you're right. The, the bike at that stage was always the challenge. Um, and the technology is very different today than it was back then. And that's awesome because as you, you may have seen some of the hand, hand bikes now, you're virtually lying down, which is a lot more aerodynamic than if you're kind of sitting upright like we are at so what was I thinking? Um, the, the other guy that I trained with in um, in Florida, a guy called Scott McNeese, was I was thinking of trying to stay in front of him. My swimming was better than his. And there was another guy, Randy Cadell. He's a great guy, um, blonde hair, kind of like a beast, great guy. So, you know, you want to stay ahead of those guys, right? Which I think if you talk about the top pro men and male and females, they're trying to stay ahead of the competition so they're giving themselves a chance to, to, to win. So I was thinking about a lot of things because uh, my my time in 97 was 12 hours 21. So obviously I dropped a fair bit of time. Um, it's, just, it's just that momentum to keep on going and, you know, stay where you are. So you think of a lot of different things when you're pushing yourself up against the wall. But you're, you're truly testing yourself. Right. And, you know, that doing Kilimanjaro with, you know, planks coming on and the terrain not looking ideal. And I didn't expect this and kind of, um, you know, the challenge are always presented to all of us all the time. So I found myself to go, do you know what? I, I, I chased the dream that was my mountain to climb, call it Iron Man. And the good news is that uh, I was able to uh, cross the line. Yes, there's a medal around the neck, but more importantly, it was that I was capable of chasing the challenge. It took three attempts. Yes, it hurt. Yes, I pushed myself further than I ever had previously. So it was nice that the benefits of that people can look at that all these years later and go, okay, there was a starting point. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of more proud of the people who are around the team who enabled it to happen because without them, there's no way in the world. You know, um, so John, I played a big part in that, obviously. My doctor played a part. My dad was a huge part. I took my dad uh, to the, the race in 1997. Uh, he was 70 at the time. And I just wanted to, to show him, hey, dad. And my dream was that I won, I won, we won. And I wanted him to see that. Why? Because he's my dad. Uh, he saw me at my worst. Remember the surgeon said, we don't expect him to live. Let's call that the worst. And now he was going to see me at my best, right? I mean, he saw me playing football, obviously, but so it's about those memories, uh, some that are worth holding on to, some are absolutely worth letting go. And that's one, for me, my dad's passed many years ago. That was a wonderful moment in time that we uh, were able to share and it was it was quite special. So um, you think of a lot of things when you're, when you're chasing a dream. Which is kind of funny, right? Because it's sort of that statement to your dad of like, 
I'm okay. You don't need to worry about me anymore. Uh, which, you know, I think as, as a parent, I, I don't think you spend a day of your life where you're not worrying about your children, regardless of what your children are doing, who they are, or how proficient they are. But that's, that's that I've recovered. I'm here and, and I'm okay. What's, what's next then? Do you, do you say, okay, I, I've done that and you've opened the door for so many people, but your father, along with your your buddy who got you to do the triathlon, had thrown down the gauntlet for you and you react well to the gauntlet. How far will you go? You'd already gone really, really far. And how does that fit? You said you had some sponsors. So there's a part of that too, right? Is is like how do we, how do I continue this relationship? But what's the what's the next step after you finish Kona? I'm assuming there's a good night's sleep, you know, maybe a beer or two. But but after that, when when does the dream rekindle and sort of reposition? Um, so I believe this is the case for everybody. Um, and I know life is busy. So just in terms of priorities, whether you um, have a view, my view on that success, we'll come back to answer your question, is I think if you have a goal for yourself, that's important. Because when I looked in the mirror for the first time, Chris, in the spinal unit, you might recall, I didn't see anybody else. There was no one else looking back at me than me. So I thought, okay, there's a good one uh, in the airline industry. You may have heard this a few times. Um, you know, in the event of something happening, please you know, fit your mask before fitting others. What is that saying? It's important that you breathe to help others to breathe. So I think of the mother, I think of kids. So back to, um, I needed to find something for me. And if I could do that, then maybe life would have some meaning. And then what's after that? Family, where you start and finish. That's a given. Uh, next one is work. Provide income to support. Makes sense. And the last one is the community piece, which is the giving back piece. So I kind of learned that early. And what I found was, Chris, when I was doing Ironman, it was the best extension of myself. I wasn't just going through the process. I was loving it. So I found out that when... And again, it was my challenge to myself and my conversations that if I could do that, I, I would see myself as being equal to others. That was my challenge. So what does equal to others mean? I mean, that's an interesting one too, right? I and mean, this is all in your head and your perception. I often say that for me, it was, it was how I perceive myself, how others perceive me. But then there's the how I perceive how others perceive me which it sounds like it sounds like it's really more of the third that you're talking about the equal to others. Yeah, so I think let, let's dig into that one. Um, so pre-accident, I'm, I'm playing uh, football. I'm professional, I'm getting paid to do that. You also had another, another job back then. Today it's full-time professional um, athletes. So I was very comfortable in my skin, very comfortable. And accident, not comfortable, very uncomfortable. You know that I'm grateful again that I can have this conversation with you knowing that we've been down a similar path. So when you're that uncomfortable, then you have a lot of conversations and then you don't see yourself as being, well, I didn't, I can't speak for you, but I didn't see myself equal to others at that time because I was reliant on people to keep me alive, number one. To, to assist the transition out of intensive care to a general ward, 
Uh, now we're talking about, for those who are unfamiliar, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, hydrotherapy, all the pieces that you know. And then it's getting you out of there to open up that bed for the next person who's about to come into it, right? So that's when you, I went from very comfortable to very uncomfortable. And now you push me out and I went back to live with my parents. So, you know, a broken, that's the right language, and parents, the nest, if you will, uh, to get you to a point where you mentioned a little bit ago that you're able to go and do your own, fly again, to go and do your own thing. So the hardest part for me was with my conversations and again with others and the look of others in their eyes, you would be maybe familiar. Then there's always that maybe it's a bit of a pity or maybe it's a bit like you're a young guy and you're in the wheelchair. And, you know, I remember one lady saying to me one time, um, she just stopped me to say, I just want to talk to you for a bit. And she was telling me about all of her pain. Now, my dad brought me up, parents, um, dad in particular being this, that you're always very respectful that you never swear. And, and if you did, that resulted in a discipline. Let's suppose it wasn't a clap. <laughs> so, you know, you learned those lessons early, right? So I, back to this lady. And I was like, excuse me, do I know you? Or do you know my parents? So I was trying to. And after a while, she said, no, but you understand my pain. And I said, how is that? She said, because you're in a wheelchair. So she made an assumption that because I'm in a wheelchair, I'll be more than happy to spend time listening, adding into, oh, yeah, I understand pain. Yeah, the world's horrible and, you know, I've got it, but let me add some more fuel to the fire. And so you can start to see that for me, I could branch off to two different types of people, people who want to lift you up and take you forward. Very grateful that I've met many of those. But we need to identify them, right? That's key. We need to identify them. Equally, there are people who are more than happy to pull you down and take you backwards. They, they exist in all of our... So that was a turning point for me, Chris, to go, do you know what? If I, back to, back to my conversation, if I could take on that challenge and if I could do that, then it doesn't matter what anyone ever says to me or a look from anybody wherever I go, that I know that I'm equal to others. And that was my benchmark. And therefore, after that, I felt very comfortable in my skin, Chris, and I was very comfortable in the wheelchair and I was very... But I needed to challenge myself in order to be uh, comfortable. So when I say comfortable, and then the next challenge, which is the the question that you shared, I was just going then for a recovery swim and just enjoying myself. So now we're near the intensity of training for an Ironman. And I just met this guy randomly who'd swum the channel. And he was in the local paper. And I just went up to him to say, congratulations. That's, that is awesome. For nothing more to, to acknowledge what he had, he had achieved. And... He said, I equally heard that you've done the Ironman. I would like to acknowledge that as well. So, and then he simply said, you know what? I'm a lawyer. Um, I swam in this pool up and down. And then I went and had a crack at the English Channel and I made it. So, so that means that if I can do that, so can you. And that's simply how that next opportunity was presented. And, and then the question again, right? So now there's a picture. Okay, so what would that look like? That's me swimming from one country to another. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to use that as a um, a vehicle to inspire kids in wheelchairs around the world? That's what I was thinking. Okay, so what do I need to do? I need to. I was lucky enough to meet the head of Gatorade here in Australia, a guy called David Knight, and perfect timing again. So he said, "You know, what do you want?" I said, "I want to swim the channel." 
And then uh, I said, I want to inspire Kiji Muchez and I want a documentary. And so David became my support swimmer. And guess what? The documentary was shown around the world. And I'm hopeful that maybe some kids saw that. It doesn't necessarily have to be Kiji Muchez, but you would hope that people would see that and they would lift them up. Because when I recently watched your uh, Kilimanjaro effort, it lifted me up. It was like, do you know what? I'm, I'm inspired by people who take on the challenge of life. So that was the example of the channel at the time. And and yeah, I think you totally hit on it, right? Because because sometimes it is it is dealing with you know whatever demons or whatever we have as well, like that they come and find us in those in those most challenging moments, and knowing hey, you know what? I've I've been successful. I mean, I literally I have I have a little reminder that I have framed in my office that reminds me, and, and you know, one we certainly share, you know. I recovered from a broken back. It's like, okay, yeah, there will be challenges in life, but that was a fairly profound one. And we have to be able to, you know, that's that's sort of that sense of equal. I often think that confidence to me used to be about what I could do. And then it, the flip of that is that it's that it's knowing that I can handle whatever's going to come my way. And it sounds like that's exactly where you ended up with both Ironman and then the English Channel, but the English Channel to me, I mean, mentally sounds as difficult, if not more difficult, than Iron Man because one, you're going from point to point, but you also don't know how the tides are going to affect you. So it's not a fixed distance that you're going. So say a marathon is twenty six point two miles. This could be 26.2 miles. This could be more. It could be less, depending upon how you how you swim through these, these currents. But then also the most most the busiest shipping area in the world. So you've got major, like you are you you are the proverbial insect running into the windshield. And and you're a long way from shore like that. I mean, I know that you had you had David as a support guy and you had people people around you. But at the same time, like you're a long way from home. I mean, in a in a human sense, this is this is some of like what makes a nightmare in a lot of ways. I mean, this is this is sort of the opposite of like getting getting claustrophobia in the tiny little little tunnel but but it's this it's the same kind of thing that you're in this gigantic space and you can't find your way home how was the mental journey of swimming the channel so i'm gonna you remember i said i, I couldn't swim i didn't swim I, I used to run so running was 100 meters or 200 meters okay so i'll breaststroke the the first triathlon we shared that so now it's like, okay, this guy has presented me with an opportunity or a challenge. That's what he has done. So now I have a choice to say, ah, oh, you know, it's okay. I'm I'm gonna bathe in the Iron Man glory for I don't know, in the bubble of the sport of triathlon. <laughs> um, as you know, we're all in different bubbles, whatever we're into. That's an example of a bubble. And I thought, okay, then I did some research because that's important too. There needs to be a why around what you do. 
I shared with you the Iron Man was the why was to see myself as being equal was the why. Uh, what was the why for the English Channel? That uh, no athlete had done both the Hawaiian Iron Man and the English Channel. I could possibly be the first in the world, irrespective of chair, um, to have done that. I now know why because it's as opposite as black is to white. <laughs> as hot as the cold. I mean, that diametrically opposed. So it was a big challenge. And then I thought, you know, are you up to the challenge? Does, does, um, does this excite you? Does this light you up? Does this give you, um, you start to dream again, right? So like, to me was, I thought about kids in wheelchairs in my four months in the spinal unit. I knew I had to do something. I wasn't sure what it was, but it started to take form. And therefore, if there's a vehicle in that process to inspire, then maybe we need to capture that in order for it to be put into a documentary, in order for it to be National Geo and Discovery and you know sold globally. You need to do something. So therefore, do you have the courage to take the first stroke? That takes a lot. So now we want to get uncomfortable because um, let's talk about Iron Man's comfortable because you've done it, right? You know, or you, or you won the Super Bowl, so you've got the, the ring, or you've, you've done whatever it is. So now it's like, I'm going to be comfortable, right? Maybe it's Jordan in a chair, smoking a cigar, or Arnold, or whatever that. You know, you, you relax. And then I thought, wow, imagine that. And so this dream started to take off and started to get momentum. So then I was like, okay, I need to go to the pool. I knew I could swim 2.4 because that's part of the Ironman, but could I do more than that? So I went to the pool by myself, you know, wheelchair at the end, got myself in, swam up and down, up and back. And then I got out. So as I was drying myself off in my chair, a gentleman walked up saying, hi, you know, my name's David. Hi, David. Um, what are you doing? I said, I'm swimming. I thought that might've been obvious. Kind of a bit cheeky, right? <laughs> and then he said, he said, I'm a swim coach. Are you training for something? He might have thought, you know, just a local meet for a guy in a wheelchair. I said, yeah, I want to, I'm going to swim the English Channel. He said, do you have a coach? And I said, no. He said, now you do. You can start to see, I want to use this as an example, that once you set your, your sights or your scope on exactly where it is you want to get to, not maybe, but exactly, then you can, people just start to come in. And if you're aware of that, then you can determine whether they're the right people to have on board. I mentioned David Knight was my support swimmer because he ran Gatorade and he was going to invest $100,000 for a documentary. He wanted to be my support swimmer, so you're in. Um, you know, other support swimmer, Wally Brumiak had done Iron Man and many other things, so he was in. And, you know, you start to, it starts to come to life. So when I put on 20 kilos, which is 44 pounds, um, I trained in winter here at nine degrees. I'm not sure what that equates to. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to do the math, uh, but it's uh, nine degrees. Uh, yeah, it's it, it is cold. It is cold. I mean, that's uh, it's like nine fifths plus thirty two or something like that. If I can do the math right. Uh, so let, let's just say that it's cold, and the reason I was able to swim in that really cold water is because I had trained for it. I'd put on the weight to stop myself going hypothermic. That, that was the challenge. 8.2 degrees. That's not warm. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So that, that's what I was training in at, at, at its coldest, at the lakes in Penrith where I lived at the time. So that's when I started to keep on thinking, uh, Chris, and to come back to the question, you know, if, if I could do one lap, then maybe I could do two. And then maybe I could do more. So then I have a, a methodology and that's access and mentor is key. So let, why not ask a man who I know of, haven't met, but I know of, who has swum the thing 19 times. So I reached out to him. His name was Des Renford. He's passed away. He was so excited to be a part of the team because someone had taken the time to reach out. He was never going to come and knock on my door. I had to have the courage to reach out to him. So you know how you kind of start to, to formulate a team to support. So on my first attempt, the conditions got very rough and I was pulled out after um, after nine hours of swimming. So no one got across on that particular day. And I couldn't sleep that night because I was thinking I, I failed, right? I couldn't sleep. So the next day we went to the captain um, at the local hotel, which he would have a, a beverage. And I said, you know, I'd like to have another chance and can I buy you, you know, a pint? And gradually... You know, he came around to say, I'll, I'll try and slot you in again. So 13 days later, I got a second chance and we got across in 12 hours 55 and the conditions were kinder. And we, I swam about 50 kilometres in terms of, as you mentioned, currents and tides and not point to point. So it, it was a long day in the office, but it's a beautiful metaphor to encourage others if they choose to um, chase a dream. Because if you have the courage to start, you might even catch it. You have many examples in your, your world then it is possible. And therefore, if it's possible for me, it's possible for others. Um, but they need to find the thing that lights them up, right? You can't do it because someone else thinks it's a good idea. It has to be a good idea and it has to light you up. So at that time, that's the thing that lit me up to want to be the first. That was the why. Um, we did raise a lot of money. We did start a foundation to help kids in wheelchairs. So, um, and that, that then led to Sydney. And the Sydney part to kind of come back to where we started was... If I could represent my country, the why was, you know, how special that would be to, you know, to represent at a home games or Paralympic games. So that was the challenge after the channel. Right. And then you made the, the finals of the 1500 meters, which meant that you got to do the demonstration event at the Olympics and wear your country's colors as well. That, and, and that to me is one of the, you know, there, there's a lot to get there and there's a lot to, obviously you had, you had fitness, you had drive, you had the ability to suffer, but being fast in a wheelchair meant that you had to develop the technique. You had to figure out the, the strategies of being in the pack, which is, which is a really big challenge. So to me, I mean, I think it, it's funny. Do you feel like like there's a like like it, it's 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 in ascending order of 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 importance in in your mind or is there one that stands out more like looking at Ironman looking at the channel looking at the Paralympics qualifying for the Olympics competing in the Paralympics eventually winning a Paralympic medal in rowing I mean you you've demonstrated proficiency over a wide range of things which is really probably one of the most impressive things yeah so let's have a look at the the paralympics was the focus so i wasn't thinking medals chris i was thinking you know if i could make the team if i could make the team and compete that would be 
that would be special. Um, so it turned out you might recall well, was here for Australia that in order to get an A qualifier, you needed to equal a silver medal performance from the previous games. That was for us here in Australia. That was the standard. So when I had the opportunity, um, then we found out pretty late in the piece that there was going to be that demonstration event in at the Olympic Games and you had to qualify for that. And that was in uh, Switzerland. Um, I learned, and you're one of the guys I ran into, it's like, ask questions. And nobody, nobody, and rightly so, saw me as a threat because, well, you know, first thing I needed to do after swimming the channel was to lose, you know, 44 pounds, which it took me, you know, five or six weeks to do that. And I just switched on to the fact that I worked out, you know, what I needed to put on weight is to eat a lot and therefore to lose it, well, don't eat a lot and to start to exercise in a different way. So. So that, that was number one. So it's always important to go, what are you chasing? And it was, I was chasing to represent. Okay. So as part of that chasing, um, I got a chance to spend some time with uh, Heinz Fry in Switzerland. I'm not sure you had much time with him, but what a guy. Like, what a guy. And I was just asking questions and I spent time with Jeff Adams. And, um, Jeff in Canada. I had some family in Canada, so there was a, a natural link there. And again, I'm just... Hey, you know what works for you what what's the best type of chair what what do you find the push rim size what what's the glove like, and just and again I'm the guy who doesn't have a history in wheelchair racing so it's like well you know what I use this glove or I, I I push this particular chair so there's there's nothing like trial and error and then you kind of work out what works for you but I I looked at a lot of the guys and I thought um these guys are phenomenal they are, they are the best of the best and they've spent years honing their craft and they're very competitive, Jeff, as you would know. I mean, you know what, he was, he dominated, right? And if you get on the way, he'd do his best to mow you down or... And I, I like that coming from a, a rugby background that it's competitive, right? So, okay, I'll, I'll try, I'll see what happens. So we set the bar at trying to represent. And as it all unfolded, um, I managed to qualify in the four by four relay for Sydney, The um, the eight, oh, sorry, the 15, the five, the 10, and the marathon. So I had all this on my plate. Uh, what I learned was the guys who focused on one, possibly two, uh, generally those are the ones who picked up the medals versus the ones who are doing. But also taking a step forward to have that opportunity to uh, compete at a home Olympic Games in lane one, doesn't matter what your name is, in front of 110,000 people. Um, that was really special. So after that whole experience uh, of competing and, and being honoured to be able to represent, remember that was the dream. When the rowing piece came up, then I needed to change the dream. I wasn't just representing. It was, you know, are we capable of doing more than representing? So in answering your question, um, I think Ironman and Channel are way up there because they are non, at that stage, uh, what one would consider uh, wheelchair sports. Right, you had to open the door. Um, having the opportunity to to represent, I'm very grateful for. So I was always into what I was into, Chris. So you know, now I'm into something that's completely different. So um, I'm, I'm grateful that Iron Man was the challenge because I'd say that that was the hardest thing for me to do to find myself. Um, and I think when I did that Nepean triathlon across the line with Amanda and Jack, 
as a, as a husband and a father and certainly tapped into an athlete athlete piece in order to cross the line together um that's the one that meant the most so you you went back and you did the Nepean uh, triathlon but then you did it again where you were able to do it with without the wheelchair right so this is yes. this is what you're talking and and that brings us into cuz you said after Ironman that you felt you felt equal in a lot of ways, but that's the conflict for so many of us who are probably all of us who have had this kind of a spinal cord injury, this kind of a traumatic injury where you don't recover completely, right? If you break your arm, they put it in a cast, your arm heals, and then you're fine. But if you break your back and damage your spinal cord, it doesn't work that way. This is this is an injury where in some ways, to your point, it's like you stay injured afterwards. But the the Iron Man gave you that sense of, of equality. But the thought for all of us is that the only way to recover is to walk out of here. And so you were able to do the Nippian Triathlon as a walker. But how did that work? Because the 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 Kenware neurophysics therapy is 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 a little bit different. I mean, I, I've read about it, and I can't say that I completely understand it. So maybe you can describe how this could work to actually get you to the point where you left the wheelchair behind, as you're doing in your in your logo, right? Where your where your shadow is the wheelchair, and and you're walking away. Which, uh, but anyway, how? How does this therapy work? How do how do you make it work? So I want to introduce again. An opportunity was presented. Um, I think if we took the time to unpack your story, there was pivoting pivotal moments that opportunities were presented. So um, a gentleman, we'll do Ironman into Kenware into Nepean, if that's okay. So I have um, the foundation that I'm a part of, um, the John McLean Foundation. From that first swim of the English Channel, um, Nike made a contribution of $20,000. Um, we've now converted that to $4 million, which helps kids in wheelchairs around the country. So it's about providing opportunities for those kids. One of the ambassadors for the foundation, a gentleman called Pete Jacobs, won the Hawaiian Ironman in 2012. So world-class athlete. He was injured. Uh, we happened to bump into each other closer to his home. He said, I'm going to go and see this guy. You know, I've done the convention, osteo, physio, nothing's worked. You know, I'm a professional athlete. I make my living. So he went up there limping, and three days later, he came back sprinting. It's hard to get your head around, right? So this is a non-spinal cord conversation, but that opened the door for me to Ken. And he said, you have to go and see this guy. So initially, Chris, for me, um, having a sore shoulder from, I guess, repetitive maybe handbike or swimming or wheelchair racing with you and all that stuff. So that's what I, yeah, I, I thought that um, he he might be able to help my shoulder. Nothing more. Nothing more. So the initial conversation. So it's important to remember at the start I shared that I could hobble around on crutches, Canadian crutches, taking the weight of my left leg, um, my right side more paralyzed than left. My dad challenged me to the point of, um, you know, and I used to drag myself around a lot and just exhaust myself. So that's when dad, you know, how far can you go? 
accept the chair. So that's brought us up to this point. So I go and meet with Ken. Ken basically said, what do you want? Isn't that a beautiful question? We often don't ask ourselves that question as we age because we get busy with life. And I said to him, uh, I'd like to walk on the beach with my wife. You ask me a question, that's my honest response. May not be able to do that, but you ask me, that's my response. So he said, okay. So now we go back to trying the little boy within um, has been presented with a challenge. So do you have the courage to try? It's very daunting to start. So number one is for me, and I can't speak for others because only they can speak their truth, their story. He gets you to close your eyes. So you would have done many lap pull downs over the years, Chris, where you kind of put your neck forward and there's a, a pulley, there's a butt. Okay, so now think about a, a dual pulley system. So there's one, you know, kind of here and one here. So now you've got your eyes closed because that's that's important. And what you're trying to find is um, your middle ground to be equal and even. Okay, so let me just touch on it a little bit. Um, I've got my eyes closed. I'm sitting upright. I'm, you know, I'm in the position he wants me to be, and he's guiding me through this, so that's important because often you open your eyes and you stop doing it because it's uncomfortable. Right? You talk about getting uncomfortable. This is very, very uncomfortable. So I'd have my hands up, my eyes closed, trying to think about, you know, everything where it needs to be. And then he'd say, you know, just, just let it go and hold the resistance. And as you're holding the resistance in your mind, you're building stuff up, which isn't there. So now it's perception versus reality. Okay. So, you know, like this feels like a house, I'm holding up a house and you're not, you're just resisting five pounds or whatever the resistance is. And then over a while, um, he would say to me, John, are you in the middle? Try and be equal and even. Again, eyes closed. And Chris, I said to him, absolutely. So then you think about, I'll try and do it in the screen here. So I've got my eyes closed and he said, are you sure? And I said, yes. He said, open your eyes. So now there's a mirror and I see this. But with my eyes closed, they were 100% equal and even. So what do we learn here? There's a disconnect with what's actually happening here and what's happening in here. So then he made an adjustment. So let's go the opposite. Now close your eyes again. So eventually over time, you're trying to find this um, plane of being, so the two hemispheres of the brain, now we're trying to communicate with those. That's why you switch off the visual cortex. So you're closing your eyes. And you're trying to find whether there's anything um, with my injury and remembering that I'm incomplete. So that's important. To say that would be a very different outcome for someone who was complete versus incomplete. So now we move to the legs. So this is this is now really scary, right? Because I haven't done any resistance on them for many years, as in 25 years. That's a long time. And he said, You're okay, close your eyes. So it's like a leg press, no weight, but and then it's okay, like it didn't snap, and there was something there. And so over time. So now we've got resistance here. We're upright. Um, we are, we're at the beach. So this is building up to, so think upper body as well as, you know, lower body as what I can use. And he, then he drew a line in the sand and he said, do you have the courage to try and take the first step? That's a yes or a no. For most of us, we'll find an excuse not to, right? Because that's uncomfortable, right? 
I want to stay in my chair, give me my coffee, I'm happy, leave me alone, you know, where's the remote, kind of. This is the complete opposite of that. So I took a couple of steps as best I could with my existing paralysis. And I fell over. And then he said, you know, make some changes. Let's do this different. A few more steps fell over. Back to the start line. And then eventually I had the opportunity to hold my wife's hand and walk on the beach. So what do we learn? We learned that um, I perceived that to be impossible. When I was challenged, um, I was capable. He then said to me, you were always capable. You're just unaware. Because now we go back to 1988, which is when I had my accident. There was not MRI technology to say, this is the damage in the core, in the spinal cord. And I did try and do my best on those Canadian crutches, as I've mentioned, and in the parallel bars initially. And, you know, I fell over many, many times. So um, the piece there is that um, I was capable of more. And like you with Kilimanjaro, it was sitting there. It's like, you know, it's ticking away, right? It's ticking away. And that's when I dreamed again, Chris, and I, I, I purposely bring that up again because I was like, imagine if I could go back and finish what I started 26 years later um, using my legs this time. And I got some assistance. Uh, there's a company called in Melbourne here called Neuromuscular Orthotics. So kind of carbon fiber leg-based technology initially out of the military, US military. So very grateful for that technology. Um, and then walking poles. So now we, we start to work towards Nepean and there was a team to support. The swim obviously was not a problem. I didn't have to breaststroke. Um, the bike was challenging, but we got through it. And obviously if your pelvis is supported, you're just trying to do all you can with what you have, which I was able to do. And then it was the six mile um, walk. And, you know, it was, let's break that down. You know, right pole um, for balance, you know, get through, sorry, left pole, get through right leg right pole, get through left leg. And then over a long period of time, we managed to cross the line. And here I was to pass the, the, the poles to my friend David. And Amanda and I and Jack held hands and we crossed the finish line. So what do we learn from that? We learned that um, I had closed off that door many years ago because I saw myself as, you know, John McLean wheelchair athlete. And someone challenged me, Ken, Ken Ware, to say, maybe there's more. Do you have the courage to explore that? And I'm grateful that I did, uh, Chris, because um, that was the pinnacle. You asked that question a while back. That was the pinnacle because it took all of my background, all of my experiences, all of the challenges to create a team to see whether I was up for the challenge. And it was really tough. And it's absolutely not for everybody, making that very clear. Um, if someone with the exact same injury, um, they could absolutely get that as a result, but he or she may not want to take on that challenge. Um, so that's how I kind of transitioned to learn to, I still use my wheelchair, that's very much a part of my life. Um, but there are times when I can get up and put on the carbon fiber braces and do my best to walk around. Were you more prepared for the identity change? I mean, had that been the sort of evolution? I mean, you're talking about embracing the challenge, embracing what you hadn't allowed yourself to believe you could do. But you'd gone from being a football player, and that was your identity, to suddenly being broken effectively in the hospital, a huge identity change. But then you built that up and were 
successful. It's where you, as a wheelchair athlete, it's where you made your living. And then, then suddenly, in some ways, I mean, it can be perceived this way, right? That you, that you were successful in that realm, and then you walked out of it. Where the emotional identity journey had you prepared beforehand? Did that happen as you were doing the therapy? Was it was it part and parcel in some ways? with the therapy that that one had to be had to complete the other in order for you to be successful you're right um a lot of us hold on to our our identity and i identified as a professional as you mentioned a professional athlete then that was crushed there was a transition but then i identified as a wucha athlete i was very happy to say that because i was very proud of um the experiences that I explored with others, very comfortable in that space. And back to Ken, um, he said, you know, who are you and what do you do? I said, well, my, my name's John McLean. I am a wheelchair athlete and that is autopilot and I'll keep on saying that to you without even thinking about it because it's embedded into my psyche. And then he said, do you still want to be that person? So he's thought-provoking. So I said, what does that mean? And he said, wouldn't you just be happy with being John McClain? And that's a pretty famous name in the US. And obviously, Die Hard, one, two, three, just kept on going with Bruce Willis. And sometimes people would say, you know, John McClain, right? That, that was kind of a ha-ha thing. And you're right. I, I would present as a presenter in my wheelchair as having done a, a few experiences. And therefore, that puts me in, into the transformation or change space. So there's conferences around the world. And therefore, you know, are you prepared to lose that identity? And the answer to that was yes. Like, sure, you know, let's just be me. But what that actually did, Chris, again, it's another door to close consciously. Like I need to stop saying wheelchair athlete, be thoughtful of that. The example is when you and I and many others learned to drive a car, we were paying attention. That's a brake, that's an accelerator, that's a seat. You know what I'm saying? And then over time, autopilot. So was I prepared for that identity change? Well, yes, uh, you know, I was. And then, so now I'm so, you know, hi, Chris, it's John, great to see you again. But imagine imagine if I didn't know your backstory and you didn't know my backstory. I would hope that I would still want to be connected to you because I like you, irrespective of either of our backstories. You're a nice guy, I like you, and therefore... So that you can start to see that some people get so caught up in their identity of being, a, I don't know, an athlete or however they present. So I, I always like this idea about um, today's an exciting opportunity. What can tomorrow look like? Is there an opportunity to cast a shadow for others going forward? So I, I, I'm very much mindful of, of that. But also by saying to some people at some stages, you know what, imagine if I did nothing. I'm completely happy with that. Let's delete yesterday and everything before that. So it's a blank canvas to start with. So you talk about being human, that's being real. That's being raw. So there's no bias towards what you may or may not have, have done previously. But the fascinating part about presenting is when I'm able to stand up from uh, a presentation, and take some steps. If I didn't accept the new identity, I wouldn't have been able to take those steps. So you can see that that's 
so I'm very proud of what's happened, um, but I'm very real in the in the art of being human. Right? I'm not. I don't live there. I don't get caught up there. Um, and therefore, it's always about the next challenge for me. Um, what do I have to look forward to? Because that helps me get excited about um, chasing the next dream. And I think if someone wants to say, how would I identify you? Like, you know, who are you? Are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm, I'm a person that gets excited about working towards trying to be better. Looking forward so, as opposed to looking backwards in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's remember you, you mentioned the bug kind of on the windscreen. So uh, I try and look at the windscreen because if you spend too much time in the revision mirror, you're going to crash. So <laughs> I think that's great. That is, I mean, it really is. It's it's an amazing it's an amazing journey, but an amazing journey of embracing change and change to most of us is is the most the most the scariest thing that we can ever imagine is is having having to change we know how things go and change is painful but embracing that process of change is also remembering that if we don't continue to change and we don't continue to get better that entropy effectively sets in right and we just effectively get worse and I've always thought that uh, the best way to not get old is to continue to learn and dream and grow. And you most assuredly are, are embracing exactly that, John. So thanks for an amazing example. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I think, uh, you know, the people that I look up to are the people that are still moving forward. And I met a gentleman doing the Ironman back in the day, Jim Ward. Now, Jim Ward was 80 years of age, 80 lining up to do the Ironman in Hawaii. There are people who, that I always look up to, not the ones who win the races, the ones that are still trying. So whether it's the, um, just the people that believe in themselves to give themselves that opportunity. And, you know, I saw something recently with the World Masters Athletic Games. There was a gentleman, I think he's a, a, a tied, he was like 106 years of age. He was doing the 60 meter, he was doing the 100 meter. These are the people who lift me up to go, they're still doing it, right? The body's designed to be moved. Um, what do I know? As you know, that um, if you don't use your mind, it'll start to atrophy. And if you don't use your body very quickly, it'll... So we're designed to move. And if we can keep on doing that and keep on being intellectually stimulated, um, there's growth and growth is exciting because to be stagnant, you start to slow down and very quickly, um, you're talking about maybe the, the good old days. Are you talking about when is that the way that you wake up in the morning or is there a mantra is there a process that that gets you into that mindset so it's it that's important so i would look at um a challenge so the i got into the sport of sprint kayak i was watching the paralympics and that really lit me up and I thought, I wonder how I'd go against these guys. So it was a new challenge, right? Um, so the best in the world is a guy called Curtis McGrath. He he won the gold in sprint kayak. And so there's the benchmark. He took a year off last year. So I was able to make the Australian team, went to a World Cup, and then I raced against uh, Kurt this year. And 
I missed the qualifying standard by one second over 200 meters, but that's what it is. And in sprint, that's what it is, as you know. Um, and Kurt beat me by about four seconds. So I, I got an answer to my question. And the question, I wonder how I go against the good guys. Well, he's 22 years younger. I'm not making excuses, but I was able to answer a question in my mind. So there are times when I wake up and I'm, you know, I'm, is Jack the, a word that you use? You jacked, you pumped, you Yeah, sure, sure. Jacked can work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I've got the energy, then I'll apply that energy. And, but it's not always the case. There's not an endless supply of energy. Sometimes like you and the rest of the people on the planet, you know, you're depleted. You're, you're, you're tired, you're run down and you need time to rest. So the, the next challenge to share with you is ocean racing. So you run a, a, a surf ski. So you've got your paddle. And the race is happening here in Australia. It's in Perth, Western Australia. It's 27 kilometers. So it's a bit of a difference from 200 meters. Um, and that hasn't been done before by a wheelchair athlete. So that excites me. That lifts me up to work towards. There are times it's quite cold here at the moment in Sydney, Australia. So I'm not rushing out of bed to, to be in really cold climate. I've got, I've got time. Do you and then, therefore, in terms of performance, um, I need to be right when the race is happening, not right before or after that experience. So I'm the same as everybody else. I like time to rest. I like sitting on the couch and watching a good series. I like, you know, I like my chocolate. I like my ice cream. But then equally, I can switch that off to then focus on, you know, when I need to be in shape for the next uh, the next challenge. So I think we're all the same in the sense that um, no one ever wakes up every single day that, they're jumping out of their skin. Um, I don't believe so, if they're being honest with themselves. We all need some time to rest, and that's why we sleep. <laughs> exactly. But it seems like there's, there's for you, the the special sauce in some ways is that there's always something on the horizon, that there's yeah. something that's pushing you. Yes. Well, it's, it's that I don't want to spark that with you, Chris, and the listeners. If we take the time, we don't always because we can find an excuse to pick up a device or whatever the example is. But when I was thinking about it, I thought, hmm, I love paddling. I love being on the water. So it's back to nature. If you look at a lot of the stuff I've done, it's not all just kind of wheelchair sports stuff. Uh, there's stuff that I wanted to challenge myself outside of wheelchair sports. And dad's question come, coming back to that was, son, how far can you go? Well, I'm still going. Um, am I doing it for anybody else? No. Um, our son, Jack, is uh, turning 13 in August. And it kind of fits in for me to be in and around to do what I can for him, to be in and around. So that's not taking away. He plays soccer or football. Is he's, So I'm, I'm there for all of those experiences. But there's also time for me when the time's right to be able to do something to look forward to. And I think it's back to that success model. You know, something for yourself, something for your family, something for your business, something for your community. And when I look at it given year, if I'm able to put energy in those four areas, to me, that equals success. So there are things that pop up and sometimes they don't. You know, you're having a bit of a break and that's fine. We've got family holidays coming up in New Zealand, which I'm really looking forward to. I don't have to go and do anything, just be around and for as long as Jack wants me to be around to, or us to be around. Um, but yeah, I think having something to look forward to really gets the best out of me because I can get excited about that. And that then gives me an opportunity to, um, 
you know, and ultimately, Chris, there's going to be a, a response here. Did you, there's a documentary crew going to film this thing. You either, you did or you did not complete the challenge, right? And if I don't complete the challenge, well, then, you know, maybe Mother Nature's playing a part in that um, because it's open ocean. Um, but I'll, I will never know the answer to that question unless I try. And what did my dad and mum say to me as a little boy? We don't care if you win or lose. We don't. We just want you to try your best. So if we take that and we, if if I'm saying to my son, you know, I just want you to try your best, mum and I want you to try your best, and I'm not trying my best, I'm not a very good example. So I'm, I'm very fortunate in the, in the sense that um, life has taught me that it's a, it's a journey. Sometimes there's going to be highs, and I've had some extreme highs. And sometimes there's going to be lows, and I've had some extreme lows. And meeting you is certainly a high, and you met some beautiful people along your journey. Um, so I've tried to make the most of the cards that were dealt, Chris. I, I think you're exactly right. It's interesting that you mentioned your son, you know, as, as long as he wants you to be around, because uh, he's 13. Things start to change a little bit sometimes. What is the story that Jack tells about his dad? This is this is kind of funny, right? This this happened recently. So the kids at the school that he go to was able to talk about what do you want to do as a career? So you know, some of the school kids said, I want to be a doctor like my dad, or I want to be so Jack's time has come. And he's this, still cracks me up, Chris. He said, oh, what would you like to do? He goes, I want to be like my dad. And the teacher says, what does your dad do? He said, nothing. So for him, in particular, off the back of COVID, <laughs> pre-COVID, dad's in America or dad's in Asia or dad, wherever dad is. Um, but he saw dad for a period of time where, you know, I don't need to go to an office. I don't. Um so he would see, you know, dad going for a paddle or dad going to a cafe or dad's home when I go to school. And when I come back, dad either picks me up or drops me off at school or dad's around is the point. And in his mind, dad doesn't, dad doesn't do anything. So I want to be like him. I just, I'd like to go to a cafe. I'd like to, I don't know. So um, I think in time he'll learn that there's a bit more of a backstory for dad <laughs> that's allowed him to be in the position that we find ourselves in. Um, but we always thought that that was kind of funny. I mean, I don't want anybody to get hit by a truck. Um, and he'll learn in time that he's got to run his race. And, you know, when, when, we, when we say at the moment, because all of us, back to the time when you and I left home, there was a time when we did do that. You know, we started to spread our wings and fly and he'll do the same in time. Um, but for me, because people often ask, you know, what is the expectation for your son? And the answer to that in my eyes or in our eyes is that we want him to be him. I don't care if he doesn't want to do sport. I just want him to find the thing that lights him up because if we can get him onto that path sooner than later, then hopefully it's at least heading in, him in a direction that he'll ultimately, you know, work, work towards. No expectation of, um, of anything that his dad has done. So, you know, he'll find his path and we'll, we'll look forward to being there to support him along the, along the way. 
That is awesome. I mean, that's, it sounds like you've, 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 you're doing your job as well. And, and his, I want to be like dad in a lot of ways, sounds like what you're talking about with family that, that, Hey, you know, you might say dad did nothing, but dad's around dad's part of the family. Dad's part of the community. And, and that's, that really is a high compliment, certainly from a 13 year old. So John, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you joining us and, you know, early morning in Sydney, uh, end of the day here in Utah, but so amazing to connect again. So thank you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your family, tune in, please like us, please follow us, uh, please subscribe, and we'll continue to bring you great content. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.